Good morning, City Walk Church. How are we? We doing all right? Come on. Well, it is. I'm so glad that you're here. It's good. I don't know if you noticed on your way in, but there's a cake in the back in the in the foyer area. Uh, and today is our 10-week birthday, and so we decided why not eat cake on your 10-week birthday? We just needed another reason to eat something that's bad for us, and so we're thankful that you're here. And afterwards. If the message is awful, at least you get a good piece of cake on the way out. And so today we're going to celebrate 10 weeks, and it has been awesome to watch uh, over the first 10 weeks of City Walk Church, just already how God has begun to work in the hearts of people, and some of the stories that we've heard uh, just even already has, has just been fun to hear and just to be a small part of. And so thank you for being here. Uh, here in a few weeks, you guys know this, uh, we have Easter coming up. And on your chair, you may actually be sitting on it right now, uh, is a little Easter invite. And this Easter invite is not for you because we assume you know when Easter is and you obviously know where City Walk Church is. But this Easter invite is uh, for you to have 30 seconds of courage to go and give that to somebody else. Uh, And so I'd encourage you to take that home with you. We have more of these uh, on our Next Steps table. And I'd encourage you to pick up three or four and take them to the office, take them to Starbucks, pay for the person behind you at Starbucks in the drive-thru, and and leave an invite card. Uh, It's just a great way to just, in a very uh, easy way that's not super hard, just to invite somebody. And, And statistics say that a lot of people would come to church if somebody just asked them to come with them. And Easter is like the easiest day to do that. And so I encourage you to do that. We're going to have two services that day. Uh, Also, if you work in a a place where you have like a community board, we have on our Next Steps table, we have some actually some posters that you can pick up. We're going to deliver them to all the Starbucks tomorrow and all the coffee shops in town. But if you have a, a, a community board like in your workplace that you're allowed to put stuff up, pick up one of those. And then next week, we're going to have yard signs for you. So you're like, yard signs? Are we like doing a political campaign? No, but, but we, we have actually, we've had people come to church because they saw a yard sign in somebody's front yard, and so we're going to have some of those uh, for you as well. So, so uh, Easter will be here before we know it. So we're starting, as, as Derek said, we finished a series, first nine weeks of our church, we finished a series called Unfiltered Jesus, and we kind of walked through what would it look like if we really saw Jesus without any filters. Well, what we're going to do over the next three weeks as we lead into Easter is we're going to uh, talk about this subject of our home. And whether you're a single mom, whether you're a son or daughter, maybe you're a grandparent, maybe you're a parent, a married couple, every single one of us desires to be in a home that's blessed, desires to be in a home that's happy and peaceful, desires to have a family that that is is blessed, and, and we don't even, maybe even know what that word totally means, but we want it. Lori and I, we've been married now for just over 21 years and uh, when we first begin to date, uh, and then I, I popped the question on July 4th, uh, 1997, uh, popped the question and asked Lori to marry me, we did probably what a lot of you have done, or if you're going to get married someday, you'll do. We went to some premarital counseling. We had both grown up in different homes, and so we both had different pictures of what home looked like. Some of the things we knew about home were similar. Some of the things we knew were totally different. 
And so you go to this premarital counseling and sit down with a pastor and, or somebody and they kind of talk to you and help you really start to think through, okay, what's this thing really going to look like when we get married? And, and I remember when we first got married that Lori had a picture of what a, a happy, stable, blessed home looked like, and I did too. And one of the things that I thought a happy, blessed home was characterized by was financial stability. And so that didn't go well the first few weeks of our marriage. See, we had, we had accumulated a little bit of student debt in our college, and our goal was, man, we wanted to get that, at least my goal was that we get that debt paid off very quickly. And so if you would have went to the grocery store with us on the very first time that we went to the grocery store, which is probably a big deal for, for uh, uh, the lady, she's, she's kind of setting up home the way she wants it to, has a picture of how she wants, so she's going through, and I, I'm just there to, to do whatever I'm supposed to do, and, and as she is putting stuff in the cart, I'm literally walking behind her, pulling stuff out and putting it back on the shelf. We don't have a lot of arguments in our marriage, but that was one day that we had an argument. I was a tightwad. In fact, when we were dating, and you'll definitely think less of me for, for this, when we were dating, I remember we were working at a camp. It was like the summer before we got going to get married, and we were working at a camp in New York, and, and so Lori had some, some girls that she uh, was working with, some high school girls, and I worked with some high school guys, and, and it was our day off. And so we, on our day off, were going shopping, and I remember Lori saying, hey, uh, I, I've lost my hairbrush. And okay, well, most normal good fiancés would be like, oh, well, we just pick one up. On the, yeah, we're going to be at Walmart anyway. And my response to Lori was, well, that's too bad. You lost it. We're not buying another one. And so one of her high school girls that she was working with bought the hairbrush for her because her fiance wouldn't do it. So yeah, you hate me now already, and you already, I, I hopefully have grown a little bit from that. But, but again, I had this picture of, man, what a blessed home, what a happy home would look like. And so I man, thought, you know what, we got to be financially stable. And, and so we, we worked through that, and then we were four years into marriage, and, and we had Austin. And about the time that we were about to sign the book deal for the parenting book, about you know four months into Austin's life, because we are such great parents, we went to church one Sunday, and our little number came up on the screen. So you get a little number if your kid's having an issue in the, in the kids' ministry. You, you get the number, and you do the walk of shame to the, to the kids' ministry. So it was our turn. We did the walk of shame, like our kid was being a problem. And so we get there, and, and all the kids in the nursery are crying except Austin. And, and we, the, the, the lady said, yeah, Austin, he's, he's been biting. And so our, our natural response was, oh, oh, so which kid did he bite? And the lady said, pick a kid. <laughs> and so our son actually got grounded from the nursery. Like, who gets grounded from the nursery? We, our kid got grounded from the church nursery. I didn't even know you're allowed to do that, but our, our kid did. And so again, we're, we're trying to figure out how to have a happy, blessed home. Now we're in the midst of raising two teenagers, and oh, by the way, let's throw another one in there. Now we have a five-year-old. Uh, and, and so, and, and just like you, man, we're just trying to figure this out. Some of you, you have adult children, and, and you, from what I hear, it doesn't always get easier when they're adults. You worry just as much for them. And, and so every single one of us, no matter where you are in the family... Whether you're the grandparent, whether you're the son or daughter, whether you're that single mom or dad, or maybe you're that married couple that has children, 
every single one of us wants to be a part of a home that's blessed. No one signs up to say, hey, I hope we have a train wreck at home. I hope that's the direction that our home goes. No, we all want to have a blessed and happy home. And in fact, we, our desire for this causes us to do a lot of things. For some of us, it causes us to lose sleep at night because we're worried about things in our home. For some of us, because we want to have a happy and blessed home, it causes us to spend a lot of money. Some of it we don't have, some of it we do have, but we spend money because we think, man, if we buy this or have this, or that, then this is going to help our home be happy, blessed, peaceful. For some of us, we desire to have a blessed home so much so that we avoid conversations. Maybe you're a teenager or a college student, and and you know, man, there's certain conversations you're not even going to go try to have with your parents because you know they'll blow up. And so it's like, we're just not even going to talk about that. We're going to avoid that conversation because we want to keep this thing fairly peaceful and blessed. And so we avoid conversations. We lie. It's that, that sudden sickness that comes on when it's family reunion time and we know crazy Uncle Jack's going to be there. It's like, oh, I, I came the, the cold came back on and you know what, I'm just not going to be able to be there because we know if we go there, it's going to be drama. And so we find ourselves, you know what, I'll just avoid that. So, I mean, you, you fill in the blank. We all do it. We do a lot of things and not all bad things, but we put a lot of effort into having a home that is blessed. A home that is happy. And we do these things many times with the right motives, but we find ourselves kind of coming up disappointed when it doesn't go the way we thought it was supposed to go. Which leads us to a couple questions. And here's the first question that's an obvious question. Does God want us to have a blessed home? Like, like this, is that even something that God desires for us? Whether you're a, the, 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 the son or daughter in the home, whether you're the grandparent with adult children, whether you're the mom and dad kind of in the thick of it right now, does God want us to have a home that's blessed? And, and then the second question that kind of that would lead to is, is, if so, how do I get it? Like if God wants me to have a home that's blessed, and man, I, I do too, so what's the pathway to a blessed home? Over the next three weeks, we're going to really focus in on what does it look like to have a home that is blessed. And we're going to look at a passage of Scripture that's a passage of Scripture that that many people know whether they go to church or not. It's a passage of Scripture that's known as the Sermon on the Mount. And the Sermon on the Mount is a, a passage in the New Testament that has impacted literature It's impacted history, it's impacted leadership, philosophy for centuries. It's a a passage of scripture that Jesus, kind of towards the beginning of his ministry, that he, he began to teach. And so Jesus, just to give you a little bit of context, Jesus, he's about 30 years old and he's beginning his ministry. And one of the things he did at the beginning of his ministry was he, he took 40 days out and he fasted and prayed kind of in preparation for what he was going to do. Then he went and he began to choose some of his disciples, some of those that would be those key followers that would stay with him and minister with him for the next three years. And, and once he had done that, he began to go throughout Galilee and he began to teach 
He began to teach people. He began to heal sick people. And, and all of a sudden, this guy that, that had grown up in Nazareth and, and wasn't really that big of a deal starts to become a really big deal. And the Bible says that his fame began to spread. See, I mean, you, you think about it. If there's somebody that is teaching things that you've never heard before, and oh, by the way, he's also healing all the sick people, man, you, you get a crowd pretty quick. And that's what began to happen. Jesus, everywhere he would go, there would be crowds of people that were literally just waiting for him to speak and kind of just sitting on every single word that he said. And they were bringing their sick and all the people that were hurting to him as, as fast as they could. And in the midst of this popularity, Jesus kind of pulls away on a mountain, hence Sermon on the Mount, he pulls away and it says he, he sits down on this mountain and he kind of calls his disciples, kind of the key followers, he kind of calls them and says, hey guys, come here, I want to teach you some things. And so we believe it probably began just with his kind of close followers, but before he was done speaking, a lot of people began to gather. And, and he gathered these people and he began to teach the, this truth that for this time period was so anti what they had already heard. What he was about to tell them, the truth he was about to give them, was going to be kind of go head to head with what they had learned from the religious leaders of the day. Because the religious teaching of their day was very outward focused. And so everybody that taught was like, they were talking to you about keeping the outside clean and, and making sure things looked right on the outside. And Jesus, he, he talked about the inside. And so when he began to teach, it, it began to catch people's attention because it was words and thoughts that they had never heard. And Jesus being the <clears throat> kind of the master teacher that he was, he began his teaching with two words that would immediately have his audience lean in. If you have your Bible, <clears throat> or it'll be up on the screen as I choke to death up here. Look at Matthew chapter 5. And we're going to look at verse 6. And look at the very first two words. Very first two words in Matthew 5, verse 6. Blessed are. So to you and me, it's like, okay, blessed are. Uh, that's okay. Good, two good words. But to these people, when Jesus began his teaching with blessed are, these people, it'd be like me beginning my teaching saying, free ice cream. Like you would, what, what, free ice cream? You'd lean in, hey, listen up, he's about to talk to us about free ice cream. He says, blessed are, and immediately his audience leaned in because the, the word blessed came from a Latin word, and it meant divine joy and perfect happiness that was really set aside for the gods of the day, not even for real humans. And so when Jesus used these words to begin his teaching, and he said, blessed are these people immediately leaned in because he was about to talk about something that from their perspective hadn't even been available to them as normal people. And he says, he says blessed are, and, and this, this phrase, and you'll see this on the screen, it implied an inner satisfaction that did not depend on outer circumstances. So when he said this, they leaned in, what's he about to tell us? And he, and he goes on in Matthew chapter 5, verse 6. He says, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, 
for they shall be satisfied. Look, look at that verse again. Blessed are those who hunger. We know what that word means. It's that, that intense longing. Matthew, he would use this word hunger nine times in his book. Eight times he would actually talk about real physical hunger. This time he would talk about hunger kind of metaphorically. But it's that intense longing. He says, blessed are those who have this intense longing and thirst for righteousness. That word righteousness simply means life God's way for for yourself and for other people. Blessed are those who have this intense longing, this hunger for righteousness, for life God's way, for they will be satisfied. They will be filled. And as Jesus is teaching this, and as we begin to, to point this to what this looks like in a home, Jesus is saying, hey, this, this inner satisfaction that is not determined by outward circumstances, this inner peace, this idea of blessing, it, it, it's a, it comes from a hunger and thirst for life God's way. And, and I love how, how Matthew writes it here. He talks about our role and he talks about God's role. He says, our role is hunger and thirst for righteousness. He says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. But then he says he, what God's role is, for they will be filled, satisfied. See, our role is to hunger and thirst. God's role is to fill it in, to satisfy. It'd be like you inviting me over for for uh, whatever, for one evening. And, and you said, hey, Pastor Chris, I want you to come over and I want to have a chat with you. So, man, I come over and, and you offer me a, a cup of coffee. And so we sit down at, at your table and, and, man, we're having a cup of coffee and we're beginning a discussion. And then all of a sudden you say, oh, I got, I got some snacks in the, in the kitchen. Let me go grab a plate. And you bring over this, this really nice plate, which is full of pickled beets, you guess what you wouldn't have to worry about? You would not have to worry about me eating any of the food you brought. Because there, I, wouldn't even, there, I wouldn't even have an inkling. In fact, we'd probably have to move to a different table because you might get something else on the table that you don't want. Because I, that, that pickled beets is just like the one food in my life that absolutely, I can barely stand the smell. So if you were to bring, and, and, and man, they're your, it's your house, your table, your food, man, you would not, there would be no hunger, there would be no desire, there would be no intense longing for that, what's on that table. But then if you were to do the same scenario and you were to say, hey, Chris, I've got some stuff in the kitchen, and you were to come over and you were to bring over like a, a, a fresh plate of right out of the oven chocolate chip cookies, game changer. And, and I would be like hoping you would leave the room so I could sneak a few. But, but it's a totally different. Like automatically you would keep talking to me, but I would be distracted because those cookies were sitting right there. I'd begin to smell them. I'd begin to taste them in my mouth without even eating them. There would, and you know, you, you put yourself in front of your favorite food when you're hungry. There's an automatic intense longing for that food. And, but you know what? That's not my food, so I can long for it all I want. I can hunger for it all I want, but this is your food, and so I can't have it until you give it to me. And so I get really happy, you know, when you say, hey, Chris, why don't you have a couple? 
now and a couple later and a couple before you leave. See, I, I can hunger for it, but it's not mine to take. It's not, I, can't, I can't have it until you give it to me. And in this passage, Jesus is saying, hey, I want you, I want you to hunger. I want you to thirst for righteousness. I want you to long for life God's way. And I will make sure you're satisfied. I'll be in charge of you getting filled. See, the blessed understand that satisfaction is found not in their own pursuits, but in hungering for God's way, which automatically would lead us to this question. And it's really a personal question that we would have to really evaluate our own life in in this area. The question is simply this. What do you hunger for in your home? If, if Jesus is saying, and, and this is as, as important today as when he said it 2,000 years ago, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. No matter if you're the son or daughter, you're the single mom, you're the grandparent, the question that we all have to grapple with is, okay, if that's true, what do I hunger for in my home? What is the the deep longing in my heart? What's the underlying appetites, the pursuits that come from my heart in my home? And and if if you're having trouble kind of guessing, hey, what are those for me? It would be easy to just ask your kids, ask your parents, ask your your son or daughter. And and other people would probably be able to say, hey, here's if I had to guess, this is the thing that you hunger for, that you desire, that it's what you pursue above everything. See, what would others in our family say? For some, they might say, you know what, Dad, what you hunger for most is financial security. And it's the underlying appetite, Dad, in every single thing you do, every decision you make, the, the mood you're in, it all has to do with financial security. Maybe, maybe somebody else would say, no, for me, that, that hunger in my life, if I'm honest, is, is a hunger for success. I want to move forward in every area of my life. Or maybe it's not your success, but it's your kid's success. And so, man, your whole life is wrapped around the success of your children. And every decision you make is helping them move forward in different areas. Maybe you would say, if we're honest, that the thing that you hunger for most is comfort and ease. And so the decisions that you make, the kind of the underlying foundation of those decisions is this desire to make life easy. And so maybe that's what it is. Maybe, maybe for some it's this, this approval of others. And man, you, you, what you care about is what other people in the room think about you as a parent, as a mom, as a dad, as a grandma, as a son, a daughter. And so the underlying hunger that you have in your life is you want everybody else to think you're good. And so you make decisions based on that. That's what you, if you're honest, man, that's what you deeply hunger for. Your best day is when everybody thinks you're great. And maybe that's it. Maybe it's popularity. Maybe it's progress. There's a lot of different things that if we're honest, we hunger for. And if we allow ourselves, become the thing that drives us. And for for most of us, including myself, it's not always a hunger and thirst for righteousness. It's a hunger and thirst. It's an appetite for something else. It's so important that that no matter where we find ourselves in the family dynamic, it's so important that we're honest with ourselves on this. And here's why. 
Because our appetites are the starting line to our destinations. Let me say that again. Our appetites, what we long for, our deep desires, are the starting line to our destinations. Another way to say it is simply this. You get what you get because you want what you want. You, you get what you get. You, it, it, what, what happens in your life, you get it because it started with a desire, an appetite, with a want in your heart. And so we get what we get because we want what we want. For a lot of us, the decisions you and I regret most are personal illustrations of this truth. It's that one night on the business trip that you wish you could take back. It's the beginning of that addiction. It's that first time when you had that appetite and you, you, you kind of stepped into this thing that has now become an addiction and, and you see how your appetites have led to a destination and, and it's may, maybe one of the things that you wish you could change. Maybe, maybe for you it was, it was that one time in school that you were so focused on the approval of man that you cheated on that test because you couldn't get a bad grade and you wish you could take it back. Maybe it's that relationship, that, that good friend of yours that, man, you had such a great relationship with that person, but because of some of the appetites in your life, you began to make some bad decisions that have crushed a great relationship. Maybe it's that financial decision that you wish you could take back. And you look back at your life and think, man, I remember how I felt. I remember how I felt and what led me to make that decision. Oh, I wish I could take it back. See, our appetites are the starting line to our destinations. The brother of Jesus, James, said it this way in James chapter 4. He said this. He says, what is causing the quarrels and fights among you? Like, like what's all the stuff you don't want in your life? What causes that? He says, don't they come from the evil desires or appetites at war within you? You want what you don't have, so you scheme and kill. You kill. We, we, we kill relationships. We kill trust. We kill peace. And, and we kill those things because of an appetite inside of us that we desperately want to fill. And we find ourselves killing things along the way. And James is saying, hey, don't blame anybody else. Don't blame somebody else. The reason all this is taking place is because of something that's happening in your heart, an appetite in your heart. And so as, as we kind of look at this, as Jesus is kind of giving us a, a way forward, he says, hey, blessed are those who have an appetite in their heart for righteousness, for life God's way. They don't have to be the ones to fill that appetite. They don't have to be the ones to work for the fulfillment. But there has to be a hunger and a thirst in their heart. And if there is, I will fill it. I'll take care of it. I'll satisfy. So how do I create a hunger for God in my home? Because if, if we're honest, there's nobody in this room, including myself, that, that says, you know what? I always have an appetite for things that are healthy. Like physically, spiritually, I mean, you, you fill in the blank. I, there's times in my life that I struggle with appetites that are not healthy appetites. For me, one of my struggles is I have an appetite for progress. 
I, I struggle with, man, uh, where you, if you're around me and if something is not going well, God has to work in my heart for me to keep a good attitude. Because I have this unhealthy appetite, and yes, I have been in counseling about it uh, over the years. Uh, I have this unhealthy appetite, which for a church planner, it's like, that's probably not the greatest appetite to have because you're starting something from scratch. But God's worked in my heart by really showing me that, Chris, this is an appetite in your heart that is not an appetite that's healthy. And that if you don't get rid of that appetite and replace it with an appetite for righteousness and an appetite for life my way, you will kill relationships. You will hurt people. You will fill in the blank with something bad. And so I'm guessing I'm not the only one in the room that struggles with unhealthy appetites. So if that's the case, and Jesus has said, hey, here's the way forward, here's the way to have a, a, a personal life and a home that's blessed, how do I create a hunger for God in my home? If you're taking notes, or you can look in the app and, and take notes, these are a couple things that you, you would be probably helpful to write down. The first thing is simply this, how do I create a hunger for God in my home? Number one, model a hunger for God in your life. See, this seems very like elementary, but it really starts with a, de a personal decision for all of us. And, and here's the personal decision we have to decide. We have to decide, is Jesus enough for us? Like if we're going to be a grandparent that, that models what a healthy appetite for God looks like, or we're going to be a son or daughter or a single mom who models what a healthy hunger for God is in our own life, we have to come to a decision that says, Jesus is enough for me. Sometimes we treat Jesus like we treat broccoli, and we tell our kids to eat it because we know it's good for them, and we pretend to like it when we really don't like it ourselves. And sometimes we do the same thing with Jesus, like, hey, yeah, go, go to church, you need to be involved, but down deep in our heart, we haven't even decided if Jesus is really enough for us. And it shows in our life if we haven't made that decision. I remember uh, one passage that, that has just always stood out to me in John chapter 6 when Jesus has, again, had tons of people following him. And, and Jesus was one of these guys that wasn't, didn't have an unhealthy appetite for progress. So whenever he had a big crowd, he always said something that would thin the crowd out on purpose. I have too many people here. Let me say something really crazy that will thin this thing out. So he did that. And, and the Bible says in John chapter 6 that that bunch of people walked away and a bunch of people never followed Jesus again after he said these kind of hard things. But then in, in John chapter 6 verse 67 it says this, after all these people have walked away, Jesus said to the 12, do you want to go away as well? You guys going to leave too? And Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Basically, what Peter was saying is, we don't have any eggs in any other baskets. You are enough for us. Whether everybody else walks away, no matter what happens, you're enough for us. And so, if we're going to have a, a home that is blessed, a home that hungers for God, we have to model a hunger for God in our own life. And here's the crazy thing, we don't even have it in us to do that ourselves. We actually need Jesus' help 
to hunger for Jesus. And what's neat is Jesus knows that and he provides the grace to help us hunger for him. And which is incredible that he loves us that much to be that patient with us. So number one, we need to model a hunger for God in our life. Number two, we need to remember that we cannot change someone's heart. Whether you're a parent that is burdened for your child or you're a child that is burdened for another family member, you are not responsible to fix people. And for a lot of us, man, we carry that on our heart. We carry that on our shoulders. We have a deep desire for for seeing people that that walk with Jesus that we love. And man, if we're honest, that that burdens us. It weighs us down. And we have to remember that, you know what? If we're going to have a home that hungers and thirsts for God, we have to understand that it's not up to us. We can't fix somebody's heart. And so what it should do for us, it should drive us to pray and to pray and to pray because we can't fix people. We can't fix those that we love the most. And for some of you, you have been praying and praying and praying for that son, that daughter, that mom, that dad, that has walked away, and it's been decades. And my encouragement to you is do not give up. Do not give up because it's not up to you. It's up to Jesus and what Jesus wants to do in their heart. And so as much as we'd like to like, hey, here's a pill, take it, and you are spiritual. You love Jesus if you'll just take this twice a week. If that man, if we had that pill, we'd all be rich. But, but obviously there's not such a pill. So you know what we have to do? We have to depend on Jesus. We have to remember that, you know what? I can't fix people. And so I'm going to do what I can do because in God's economy, success does not mean progress. Success means faithfulness. In our economy, success means progress. Something's getting better. Somebody's changing. In his economy, it's faithfulness. It's us praying, us crying out to God, us modeling a hunger for God day after day, week after week, year after year. That's what success is to God, and we have to remember that. How do we create a hunger for God in our home? We model a hunger for God. We remember we can't change people. But then number three, and this is is an easy thing uh, sometimes, and sometimes it's not as easy. We make God a part of everyday conversation. Sometimes, if, if we're honest, man, we make this really awkward in our, I do, I make it awkward in my home sometimes. My kids can tell you that. Like I, I try to do this, and then sometimes it's just awkward. Like I sit down, we're going to, Read the Bible together. What? We're like doing other stuff. Just stop right now. We're going to, yeah, we're going to do that right now. So, you know, do that if that's what God lays on your heart. But you know what's better is when you're in the car on the way to the ball game, just making it part of everyday conversation. You know what's better? It's that long car line that you hate waiting in to drop your kid off. It's just as you're talking about the baseball game, you also, God comes up and you talk about that. It's what in the Old Testament in Deuteronomy, what God kind of encouraged the Israelites to do. He said, hey, when you wake up, talk. When you're walking down the road, talk. 
When you sit down, just talk. Just in everyday conversation, talk about God. Bring God into the conversation. Man, around here as we, we even walk around in the, where we're at, you can just look up in the sky and God could be a natural part of your conversation. When I was driving to church this morning, I looked over towards Marysville and the sky was incredible. And I was by myself, so I didn't have anybody to talk with, but that would have been a perfect time to just talk about God. Sometimes we're so program-driven, including myself, that, man, we have to have a program to talk about God, when probably the most effective way to really begin to develop that hunger for God in our home is just to make God part of everyday conversation. I wrote this in my notes, and it's something I need to remember myself. Small, consistent conversation over a lifetime is more impactful than we think. Just those little conversations. You're a grandparent and you're, you're, you're taking your, your granddaughter or your grandson somewhere. You're taking them to ice cream. You just have that. Maybe it's just literally like a 20-second little couple sentences that you're just, but you do that over 20 years. And it makes a difference. It begins to develop a little a hunger in that grandchild for Jesus. You're, you're a son or daughter, and, and man, your, your mom and dad aren't walking with God. And, and man, you know you, you're not going to break out the Bible and sit dad down and like read through the thing with him. But man, you can just, small things in your conversation, just bring God up and point to God and just see if God could use that to develop that hunger inside them. Last thing. How do I create a hunger for God in my home, no matter what role I am in my home? The last thing is this, and this is so important. Remember, we don't do it alone. Don't do it alone. See, God did not create you to do life by yourself. We desperately need each other. We desperately need each other if we are going to hunger and thirst for righteousness. If we're going to hunger and thirst for life God's way, we're going to need each other because it doesn't come natural. It comes natural to hunger and thirst for a lot of other things. That's kind of We don't have to teach ourselves to do that, but to hunger and thirst for righteousness, for life God's way, and to develop that in our homes, it's hard to do. And so we desperately need each other. We, 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 that's why we talk about city groups. And we talk about if you're a student, being a part of city students. Not because we just need more programs, but because we need each other. See, there's some wisdom in this side of the room that maybe somebody in this side of the room needs. There's some encouragement over here that maybe somebody over here needs. And there's some life experience over here that somebody right over here might need because we are so much stronger together. And so when we commit that, hey, we're going to be families and individuals and a gathering that hungers and thirsts for righteousness, we have to be committed to not doing it alone. We have to link arms with other people and understand how valuable you are to the body. Sometimes we come to church and think, oh, I just come on Sunday and, you know, I do my thing and leave. There's so much value in you that somebody in this room would be encouraged by. There's some wisdom in you that would help somebody else in this room. There, there's, maybe you're a grandparent and, man, there's some wisdom and some life experiences that you have that there's a single mom in this room that needs that wisdom and life experience and, and they, they need to not do this thing alone and so you could be such an encouragement to them. We don't want to do it alone. 
See, one day, there's going to be a time, hopefully not soon, that people that know me and that loved me gather in a room. And they, they gather in that room to remember me, just like there's going to be a day when that happens for you too. And like I said, hopefully that's not next week, but really when that happens, it's not really the biggest concern, at least for me. What, what matters to me more than when that happens is what are those people that are closest to me going to say and think at that service? Maybe they won't say it, but what will they think? What will those that knew me best, if they were to say, this is what Chris hungered and thirst for above all, what would that be? When, 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 when the time happens where, where you're the person that they're talking about, when, when people begin to talk about, man, your life and, and your pursuits and your hungers, like what is going to be the driving force that people say, hey, if you knew so and so well, you knew this about them. There's a lot of great pursuits that, man, I, I hope that I'm involved in and a lot of things, man, I want to do in life. But, man, at the end of the day, what I want my kids to think what I want my wife to think and to really know is that, you know what? My dad was not perfect. My husband made mistakes. But what he wanted more than anything, what he hungered for above all, was Jesus. And life, Jesus' way. And, and here's what I believe. like If that were to happen for you and that were to happen for me, our impact would go way past when that day takes place because when we hunger and thirst for righteousness we literally are impacting eternity unknowingly sometimes and so it's so important that as we close up this this first message in in this blessed home series that we remember that statement our appetites are the starting line to our destinations and if our destination and, and, and that day, when that day comes and you, you, begin to, you, you begin to think with the end in mind, which is a really good way to plan, you, you think of the end first and then you work backwards. When the end comes, what do you want to be said about you? What do you want people that knew you best to know about you? And, and if that's true, are your appetites going to lead you to that destination? Jesus said, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for life God's way, for they will be satisfied. They will be filled. And as, as we close up, I, my prayer for me personally, my prayer for you is that no matter where we are in our family, that we would be a part of developing that hunger and thirst for God in our homes. Because if we're able to do that, then it's going to impact eternity. And that's what we want. Don't we want to matter? Don't we want, when this whole thing's over, to have mattered? Don't we want those around us, to their life to be better because they were with us? 
Not just their life better because maybe what we gave them, but life on the inside better because of our impact. Lord, I thank you for your word. I thank you, Lord, for just a tremendous passage of scripture, Lord, that you gave us as you sat down with your disciples and you wanted them to understand in the midst of your popularity, in the midst of thousands of people following you, Lord, you wanted them to understand what life was really about. And Lord, though that was 2,000 years ago, Lord, today we know that we can make such application even to our families. I pray that we would be individuals and that we would be a church that above all has a hunger and a thirst for righteousness, for life your way. Lord, I pray that, that we would lock arms with each other knowing that we literally we just can't do this alone. We can't do it without you and we can't do it without each other. Lord, give us sensitivity to each other's needs. Lord, give us wisdom to know how to be an encouragement to those even in our midst now. And Lord, I pray that many years from now when, when this whole thing's over and Lord, we're all out into eternity, that we will be able to look back and say, eternity was different. Yuba City, Marysville, Sutter was different because a bunch of people made a decision to hunger and thirst for life God's way. And God, we're asking that you would take that hunger and that you would change generations. And God, we trust you and thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.